Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 12 of You Don't Know Jack. I am your host, Sarah Dimio, here with the only podcast telling you about every film in the career of the great Jack Nicholson. So now that we are 12 episodes in, we are getting to a point in Jack's career where we're really starting to gain steam. We're entering a new decade, and after the success of Easy Rider just one year earlier, Jack's star is beginning to rise. Let's reflect on that for a second. It's after 11 long years of constant work on low-budget B-movies. After starting out as a kid from New Jersey, taking a job as a gopher in the MGM animation department, which would shortly thereafter become Hanna-Barbera Productions, Jack would become a fixture in Roger Corman Productions. He would work with the likes of Vincent Price, Peter Lorre, and Boris Karloff. He married his co-star of The Terror, Sandra Knight, in 1962, and they would have a daughter, Jennifer, in 1963. He and Sandra Knight would divorce in 1968, but Jack would still get continuous work in more low-budget projects like The Trip and Psych Out, and then as a co-producer with Bob Rafelson in Head, starring the Monkees, becoming part of that 60s counterculture movement in Hollywood and being friends with Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, is what would finally get Jack his breakthrough role in 1969. So as we enter into 1970, it's not just low-budget projects for Jack that you might catch as part of a double feature at the drive-in. We're moving on to bigger productions. And even though Jack's screen time in the film we'll be talking about today is short, it was absolutely a bigger production than what Jack had worked on for the past decade. It's not an outlaw biker flick today. No, no, we're past that. Today we're talking about a fantasy musical. 1970s, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, starring Barbara Streisand. The film was based on a 1965 Broadway musical of the same name, with music by Burton Lane and lyrics by Alan J. Lerner. Now, let me tell you about these two. Burton Lane, in addition to On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, is best known for composing the music for Finian's Rainbow. But here's why he stands out to me. He is the man credited with discovering a very young Judy Garland. I love Judy Garland, always have. And the story goes like this. Judy's real name was Frances Gum, and from the time she was a toddler, she and her two older sisters had a vaudeville act, the Gum Sisters. Burton Lane saw the Gum Sisters perform at the Paramount Theater in Hollywood. Frances, a.k.a. Judy, was 13 at the time. She sang, Zing Went the Strings of My Heart. Burton Lane was so blown away by her vocals that he immediately called the head of the music department at NGM and told him that he had found a great new talent. She went in for an audition the next day, and everyone was so amazed by her, including Louis B. Mayer himself, that she was signed immediately. And that marked the beginning of Judy Garland's career. Now, Alan J. Lerner, the lyricist, 
has been a part of the creation of some of the most popular musicals of all time. Brigadoon, Paint Your Wagon, My Fair Lady, Camelot, Gigi, just to name a few. Lerner won two Tony Awards and three Academy Awards for his work for the stage and for film. Before we get into the production for On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, here was something I personally found kind of interesting. You see, the story is about a woman who has been reincarnated. Well, the 1970 screen adaptation was a reincarnation of the 1965 stage musical, which was also loosely based on a three-act play called Berkeley Square, written in 1926 by John L. Balderson. Berkeley Square was loosely based on Henry James's posthumous 1917 novel, The Sense of the Past. So, like our main character, Daisy Gamble, recalls her past lives, the movie itself has also lived multiple past lives. Now, the film was quite the departure from the stage musical. Jack plays Tad Pringle, ex-stepbrother to Daisy, played by Barbara Streisand. The character of Tad doesn't exist in the stage musical. He was created specifically for the film. In addition to Barbara Streisand, the cast also includes Yves Montand, and I really hope I'm pronouncing his name right, as Dr. Mark Chabot. Larry Blyden as Warren, Daisy's very conservative fiancé. Bob Newhart makes an appearance as Dr. Mason Hume, the president of the university. The film was directed by Vincent Minnelli. Oh, and who was he married to? Judy Garland, of course, and they were both parents to Liza. Vincent Minnelli had an illustrious career as a director of musicals. He worked often with lyricist Alan J. Lerner. Minnelli directed some titles you must recognize. Meet Me in St. Louis, An American in Paris, Gigi, and Brigadoon, just to name some. Now, I first saw On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, I want to say I was probably 13, possibly 14. I caught it on TV. I, of course, tuned in because I knew that Jack was in it somewhere. I'll be honest, I do not think I watched it all the way through. Because, well, remember last week when I said that Jack is only in one scene? Well, a listener, Lou caught me again. Jack is actually in two scenes, much to my delight. So thank you, Lou, for keeping me on my toes again. The film opens with a big opening number performed by Barbara Streisand. The song is called Hurry, It's Lovely Up Here.
And as we're listening to it, we see shots upon shots of all of these potted flowers sprouting up from seeds and growing into full bloom at a rapid pace. Daisy is skipping her way through a long courtyard, and she's making her way up into the entrance of a university hall. She's come to sit in on a lecture by psychiatrist Dr. Mark Chabot, played by Yves Montand, on hypnosis. She's there because she wants to find out if she can use hypnosis to stop herself from her constant chain smoking. She's up to five packs a day. So in the next scene... Daisy is sitting among the class, and Dr. Chabot has one of his students up in front as a volunteer to be hypnotized. Well, what we, and the rest of the students, begin to see happen here is as this young man up front is being hypnotized, Daisy is also being hypnotized from all the way towards the back of the class. Dr. Chabot wakes her up from her hypnosis, and Daisy is understandably embarrassed. She goes outside into the hallway and waits for the lecture to be over. Now, one thing that the doctor told the student up front is that whenever he hears the word Wednesday, he's going to feel inclined to remove his left sock and shoe. So before he dismisses the class, he wakes up the young man. The student says, see, didn't work. I felt nothing at all. And so Dr. Chabot says, "Hmm, really? Nothing at all? Okay. So he tells the class he'll continue this lecture on Wednesday. At which point the student up front starts taking off his left sock and shoe and the whole class starts giggling. The doctor asks him, what are you doing? He says, taking off my sock and shoe. And the doctor, in his very thick French accent, mind you, says, any particular reason or just bored? To which he gets another laugh from the class. So as the whole class is exiting, Daisy catches up with Dr. Chabot. She says, if if I could talk to you for just a minute. And as he's walking back to his office, he's brushing her off. He says to her, if you come to my next lecture on Wednesday, maybe I'll have more time. But before he can even get the whole sentence out, Daisy stops. Please understand, Daisy is wearing a skirt and stockings. She slips her left shoe off, pulls up her skirt, begins unhooking her left stocking and rolling it down. Dr. Chabot, not paying attention to Daisy, doesn't even realize what's happening until he overhears students passing through the halls, laughing and gawking. So he turns around and hurriedly rushes Daisy into his office, where, again, embarrassed, she pulls her stocking back up and gets her shoe back on. But here she explains to the doctor that she has this bad smoking habit. She started when she was 12. She had this cousin who had some, and he dared her to try it. And he was nine, so of course she had to do it. She wants to know if this hypnosis thing might get her to cut back on her smoking. She has to quit because she's engaged to the very conservative Warren, who thinks that smoking is unbecoming, especially for a lady. And as Dr. Chabot is half listening, he's looking for something on his desk. And as Daisy is explaining her troubles, she suddenly says, it's stuck in your dictionary. He says, what? She says, the address you're looking for. Aren't you looking for a paper with an address on it? He says, yes. 
She says, don't you have a dictionary? He says, yes. She says, it's stuck in your dictionary. So he turns around, picks up the dictionary and begins paging through. Daisy says, it's under X. So he turns to X and there it is, the address that he was looking for. He asks her how she did that. And she says, I don't know. I saw you looking for something, wondered what it was, and then I knew. So he asks her, what other kind of tricks can you do? She says, well, sometimes I know when the phone is going to ring, or I know when someone is going to pop in, or if someone's thinking about me, I'll go see them. Oh, and I can make flowers grow. He tells her to come back tomorrow and we'll get started to help her quit smoking. Now, meantime, the real reason he wants her to come back, Dr. Chabot doesn't know what to make of what happened here. He thinks maybe it was a trick. Maybe she saw the address sticking out of the dictionary. He doesn't want to jump to the conclusion that Daisy could have ESP when there's no proof that ESP actually exists. But when Daisy comes back the next day, Dr. Chabot learns even more about her. He hypnotizes her and he asks her again, how did she know where the address was that he was looking for yesterday? She gives the same answer. She saw him looking for something, wondered what it was, and then she knew. He asks her, where did she learn this trick? She said she learned it from Winnie Wayne Whistle. He says, Winnie Wayne Whistle taught it to you? She says, Winnie Wayne Whistle found something for me, a gold locket. And he keeps pressing her, asking all these follow-up questions until he finally asks what year this was. And Daisy responds, 1814. And as this is happening, Daisy is having all these little blips, little flashbacks of her previous life. She's seeing little pieces of being on trial in 1814 London. Dr. Chabot asks her her name. And finally, in the most proper British accent, she says, my name is Melinda, Melinda Winifred Wayne Tentries, and I am appalled and stunned at this outrageous inquisition. We're slowly beginning to find out that in her previous life, this goofy Daisy Gamble was born the illegitimate daughter of a kitchen maid in 19th century England. She became rich by getting the paternity records of all the children housed at the orphanage where she had been sent. And she used those records to blackmail the children's wealthy fathers. So as Dr. Chabot is learning all this, obviously he can't blow his cover. So he tells her as Daisy, Daisy, you will find that your desire to have a cigarette will become less and less with each one and your willingness to resist them will become stronger. So that evening, back at Daisy's apartment, Daisy is so proud of herself because she hasn't had a cigarette and she has this huge rooftop patio at her place. And this is where we finally first see Jack as Daisy's ex-stepbrother, Tad. Daisy is inside her apartment, checking herself in the mirror, when suddenly she hears music, the strumming of a sitar, to be exact. So she looks around, she goes out onto the rooftop, and there's Tad, strumming on the sitar. Now, I should just throw in here, I believe 
That is a sitar that he is playing. I don't pretend to know things. I did, in fact, have to spend an atrocious amount of time looking up what the correct name of that instrument is. Anyway, Daisy and Tad seem to have a very healthy relationship as ex-step-siblings because it does appear that Tad is the only person besides Daisy to know about her gift. Tad! Same old thing. <laughs> Looking for myself. Yeah, but what are you doing here? Well, I thought I might take uh, a course in anatomy. Maybe I'll find out how you do all those wonderful things. <laughs> oh, for Pete's sake, don't, don't, don't say anything about that around here. I mean, will you? I mean, I, I, for Pete's sake. Why? It's, it's not un-American. I mean, you've got uh, some kind of psychic power, that's all. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, to you maybe. That's because you're a nut. <laughs> Daisy, a lot of people are psychic. Fine, I'm sure they're all very nice, but that is not the group I'd like to be known as in. I mean, if Warren ever found out, he'd never forgive me. He, he thinks I'm, uh, you know, normal. Normal? <laughs> Nobody even knows what normal is. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that the character of Tad was created for the film adaptation. And it seems, based on what I've read, that Tad did indeed have a song in the film, but it was cut. The song was called, Who Is There Among Us Who Knows? Jack had recorded the song, and they did film the scene. In the scene, Tad is playing a good old-fashioned acoustic guitar as he sings, and Daisy hums along with him. And guys, yes, I did find that song for you. So, without further ado, here is, Who Is There Among Us Who Knows? Sung by Jack Nicholson and featuring Barbara Streisand. The echo of a love song Heard before it sung Wandering through a memory Dreamed when you were young Foolish or fantastic Which do you suppose Who is there among us who knows from nowhere, the thought of someone gone for many years. Then all at once a footstep, low, and he appears. Imagined or a mystery, which do you suppose? Who is there among us who knows? Or even cares, which one is true? There's hardly anyone except a haunted few Who long ago remembered Somewhere they would see Someone wrapped in twilight Carrying the key Carrying the secret Everywhere he goes Someone here among us who knows Someone here who may not even know She knows Da-dee-da-da-da-dee-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
How about that, huh? So as Daisy continues to have more of these sessions with Dr. Chabot, Dr. Chabot, though he doesn't want to admit it, begins to fall in love with Melinda. Not Daisy, Melinda. He's becoming enamored with this 19th century English seductress. But then she has to go and turn back into Daisy, who he refers to as a caterpillar, boring. And it's rough because as all this is going on, Daisy just thinks that the doctor is helping her to quit smoking and she's starting to have feelings for him. And she thinks that he's developing feelings for her too. She's not aware that she's recalling this past life of hers in every session. And that's the person he's falling in love with. Plus, without giving away any names, of course, Dr. Chabot talks about the details of these sessions in one of his lectures, and it makes big news. It's all over the radio. Daisy hears it on the radio as she's watering her flowers up on her roof, and she drops her watering can down the side of her building. The university has students picketing outside, claiming they want to know about their own past lives. Daisy, oblivious that she is that patient, is amazed, but she's also concerned about the doctor with all the unexpected attention he's gotten. But eventually she does find out what's really happening because one evening as she arrives for her session, she's alone in Dr. Chabot's office and she goes to turn on the radio in case there's any more mention of him on the news. But she mistakenly turns on his tape recorder and begins to hear her prior sessions played back to her. It starts off innocently at first. He asks her her name. She says Daisy Gamble. But then she becomes Melinda. And Daisy, hearing this, almost falls on the floor. And as you can imagine, she immediately runs over to the doctor's cigarette case and takes one out to light up. So some time passes. It becomes dark. Daisy is still listening to the tapes of her sessions. The ashtray next to her is overflowing with cigarette butts. And she hears the doctor say to himself, Oh, Melinda, why do you have to turn back into this caterpillar? And he continues, saying, Oh, if I have to hear I mean one more time. So Daisy shuts it off. She's hurt. And I felt this part. I really felt for her in this moment because it hurts to be sure that somebody likes you and then come to find out they don't feel that way at all. And in Daisy's case, it was her that he loved, but it was this previous version of her. So she puts her hand on the phone, waits. It rings, so she answers it. It's Dr. Chabot calling. Daisy is furious. She slams the phone down and storms right out of his office. The secret's out. She knows that she's the subject of all this craziness that has ensued. But I have to say, it does seem that Daisy is, through this process, gaining some self-esteem that she didn't have before. And this brings us to Jack's second scene in the movie. The following day, Daisy's fiancé, Warren, shows up on Daisy's rooftop. Now, by this point in the movie, we get what Warren is all about. He's, like I said, very conservative. 
He's very rigid, very normal, wants nothing more than to impress his bosses at his work. And he wants, no, expects Daisy to fall in line too. He doesn't listen to her. He doesn't appreciate what makes her unique. So Warren comes onto the rooftop looking for Daisy, but she's nowhere to be found. But we glance over and Tad is there. And he's looking over at Warren, just taking him in. Tad tells Warren that the reason he came was because Daisy wrote to him, telling him that she had gotten engaged. So he came to see if she was happy. And it's just the way he says it that just kind of says everything. But Daisy does show up on the roof soon after to plant more flowers. And with everything else going on, she has just had it with Warren. She tells him, sometimes I know when the phone is about to ring. And at that point, she points over to the telephone and calls over to Tad. Watch. Tell him I'm out. Hello? She's out. And she tells Warren to get off her rooftop. So he goes. It's worth mentioning that the person calling who Tad hung up on was Dr. Chabot. He wants Daisy to come back to him because he just thinks there must be a reason he's so drawn to this Melinda. He starts to entertain the idea that maybe he too had a previous life or multiple previous lives. And maybe in a life before this one, he and Daisy knew each other. And well, I won't give away what he uncovers in that regard. I'll leave that up to you about what Dr. Chabot finds out about he and Daisy's other lives. I think when I watched On a Clear Day, You Can See Forever all those years ago on TV, I didn't give it a proper chance. It's, it's cute. I like musicals. I do. Would I say this would be one of my favorite musicals? Well, no, probably not. But it's also one of those things that you have to be in the mood for it. You know how you can really enjoy certain movies at certain times, but if the mood isn't right, it's just like, get this away from me? Well, I guess I have to say that that's what this is. The movie is two hours and nine minutes long. So be ready to settle in. Be ready for an experience. If you're not someone who likes musicals, well, first of all, how dare you? But secondly, it's important to know what you're getting into. And this goes for people who are on the fence about musicals too, because this is certainly not an epic Les Miserables or something like that. No, it's very lighthearted. It's pretty funny at times. I guess my reaction is similar to when I watched Ensign Pulver for our fifth episode. On a Clear Day You Can See Forever was released on June 17th, 1970. It had a budget of $8 million and made $14 million at the box office. All pretty small scale, but still a success nonetheless. What's surprising to me is I read that when Jack was asked later about his performance in this movie, he says, it's just bad. There's nothing else to say about it. Just everything about it was bad. And whether or not that's what he actually said, I would disagree. And you know what else? 
we found out from this movie, My Man Can Carry a Tune. It's not a great song, and it's got an awkward title, not unlike the movie itself, but he could still do it. So next week, we're taking it into a whole different direction yet again. Next one is a big one, guys. It's another milestone for Jack. Next week, we are talking about five easy pieces. If Easy Rider was Jack's breakthrough role, Five Easy Pieces is the one that catapulted him into stardom. Like it, it just, it plucked him right up and slingshotted him into success. And we're going to see some familiar names in there, both in front of and behind the camera. And I'm just so excited to talk about that classic with you. So meanwhile, please, if you liked what you heard today, or at least most of it, Leave me a review and a nice rating. Subscribe to You Don't Know Jack on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you download your favorite shows. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com and discover a myriad of other great original podcasts. And come join us on social media. You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. So until next week, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.